I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. This morning we are beginning a short, shortish series for the next three weeks addressing what I'm calling some of the basic Easter questions. This is a time of year when people visit church who don't always come to church, and if, if you're in that boat this morning, we're glad to have you here and thankful you're with us. It's also a time when Christians need to reflect on foundational and basic truths of the faith. So we sing in the hymn, we have pensive, doubting, fearful hearts, and to be reminded of the truths of God's word and of the central truths of the faith is important. So the next three weeks, we're going to address some, what I'm calling basic Easter questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he die? And why did he rise again? And we're going to address each question by looking at some short passages from Paul's letter to the Romans. Our question this morning is, who is Jesus? And this is a question that everyone has to deal with if they want to be intellectually honest. No figure in all of history, in all of the world, has had so profound effect on the world as Jesus. Just one example of many of how Jesus is affecting your life right now. The largest ethnic group in the world is the Han Chinese. It's estimated there's 1.2 billion Han Chinese. Well, it's estimated that there are 2.2 billion Christians in the world. So regardless of who you think Jesus is, uh, it's, it's nevertheless a fact that a little less than one out of every three people on the globe claim to be a Christian, claim to be following Jesus, and you're interacting with these people constantly. Uh, so you're being shaped by Jesus today. Our question is, who is Jesus? And our text this morning is Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, the very first sentence of the book of Romans. Romans 1, 1 through 7, it's page 1090 in the Pew Bible, if you're using that. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to obedience that comes through faith, from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In this uh, section here, well, really, in the whole letter of Romans, Paul is writing to the church in Rome to identify himself to that church. He had never visited the church in Rome, but he wanted to set up a sort of Western base of operations in Rome to go on mission to Spain. So he's heading from Jerusalem in the east. He wants to set up base in Rome and then go on missions to Spain. But he can't just show up unannounced and say, here I am, put me up. Uh, he's got to introduce himself to them. He's got to say, this is who I am and this is what I believe. So that's what he's doing in the book of Romans. He's introducing himself to this church in Rome. Now, when we write letters, we put the name of the recipient first and then all the content, and then we sign it, whoever's sending the letter, right? Dear John, we say what we're going to say, sincerely, Nathan. In the ancient world, the format for writing letters was different. It basically says, sender to recipient, greetings. 
And that's really what we have here in Paul, or in, in the letter of Romans. Is Paul says Paul, but then he really expands who Paul is for a long time. To all in Rome, verse 7, grace and peace to you, greetings. So he's using this basic introduction to a letter, but he really stuffs it full almost to the seams. Paul introduces himself, Paul, but then he immediately says a servant of Christ Jesus. He's a servant of Christ set apart for the gospel. Basically, he's saying, if you know the king who I serve, if you know the king whose message I bring, then you know who I am. So in telling us who he is, Paul spends most of his time telling us who Jesus is. And so if we're honestly going to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus, this text is a great place to start. There's a lot going on in this passage, but this morning I want to focus on three truths from this passage about who Jesus is. Three truths. The first truth is this. Paul teaches in this passage that God sent Jesus to keep a promise. God sent Jesus to keep a promise. Paul describes his message as being the gospel of God in verse 1. It's God's gospel, the gospel of the good news. It's the good news of God the Father. It's good news that begins and ends with God himself. This is important because we can get the mistaken idea sometimes that the gospel is basically about how although God the Father was angry with us, the Son figured out a way to get him to love us anyways. And that's certainly not what the Bible teaches. It's the gospel of God. God himself loves us. It's God's plan. It's God's own good news for a lost world. And what is God's gospel? What is God's good news for a lost world? It's nothing less than this, Jesus Christ, that he sent his son. Jesus is God's good news for the world. Now in verses 3 and 4, look closely. Pause for a moment and look closely at verses 3 and 4. In these verses, we have these carefully constructed parallels contrasting two titles, two verbs, and two qualifying clauses. The two titles, he's the descendant of David, but he's the son of God in power. He became a descendant of David, but he was declared or appointed the son of God. And two parallel qualifying clauses. He's the son of David according to the flesh, but the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. We'll look at these two claims about Jesus in just a moment, but we actually have to start even earlier, right at the beginning of verse 3. God sent his son. This is concerning his son. Now, if we skim through these verses quickly, we can get the mistaken impression that Jesus somehow by his resurrection was adopted as God's son, that he was made God's son. And this was an early confusion in the church. In the, right back, all the way back in the second century, it was rejected, adoptionism. And it keeps popping up in forms of Mormonism and Unitarianism, that Jesus was just a man, but through his death, somehow he was adopted as God's son. But that's certainly not what Paul is saying here. If we pay careful attention to the grammar and logic of the passage. I know, that's no one's favorite subject, right? Grammar and logic. But it's important. It begins, the gospel concerning his son. This is all about his son. It starts, this is the subject, his son does these things. But before anything else, the most important thing we can say about Jesus is that he is God's son. His basic identity is in relation to the Father and the Spirit. 
Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. Then the Son becomes the subject of this historical process. He becomes the descendant of David and the Son of God in power. This certainly is a bold claim, and you could say, how do we know that Jesus is God? How could we ever assert anyone is God? Well, it is a bold claim, and one that we would never dream of making if Jesus hadn't first made this claim himself. Jesus talked like God. He went around forgiving sins. He said that one day he would judge the world. In John chapter 10, Jewish leaders asked Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus does not say, yes, I'm the Messiah. Oh no, he's much more bold than this. He says, I give my followers eternal life. They will never perish. I and the Father am one. And the Jewish leaders understand what Jesus is claiming. They pick up stones and are about to kill him, saying, because you make yourself equal to God, you make yourself God, you must die. And he slips away. But uh, C.S. Lewis on this makes a, a very profound observation. We must not say, he argues, the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who said he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a bad man or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his, him being a great human teacher. He has not left that way open to us. He did not intend to. So if we ask, who is Jesus? Jesus himself poses a fundamental challenge to us. Paul, for one, is clear. God is sending his own son. Paul is God's son. He is our Lord and God. I realize this is spending quite a bit of time on two words, his son. But if we don't get the meaning of these two words straight, nothing else in this passage makes sense. But getting that straight, it's concerning his son, the pre-existent son of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity. Keeping that straight, the rest of this makes sense. Now we can look back at verses 3 and 4. Paul says that this eternal son of God becomes the subject of a historical process. In verse 3, Paul gives us his first title, saying he is descended from David according to the flesh. Paul might simply have said, like John in John chapter 1, that God's son took on flesh. So what's this business about being descended from David? Why does that matter? In short, what Paul is saying is that God sent Jesus to keep a promise a promise made long ago to David, and this is pivotal to who Jesus is, to his identity. Paul says in verse 2, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. All the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David uh, is finally crowned king over all Israel, Judah and Israel, the northern kingdom. He has rest from all of his enemies, and he decides that as a way of saying thank you to God, he wants to build a temple or a house for God in Jerusalem. And you may recall, God responds to David through Nathan the prophet, and he says, he says, no, 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 you want to build me a house, but in fact, I'm going to build you a house, 
a dynasty that will last forever. I'm going to establish the throne of your descendants' kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He shall be to me a son. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established. Now, if you know the story of the Old Testament, it doesn't really work out like this. A lot of David's sons turn out to be not very good kings. And ultimately, the kings and the people of Israel with him go into exile in Babylon. But God's people ask, can this really be the end of God's promise? God said his throne will last forever. Surely God's promise has not failed. And in this situation, Isaiah, among other prophets, says, no, this is not the end of God's promise to David. He says in chapter 7 of Isaiah, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Similarly, Isaiah 11, you'll remember this great uh, Christmas or Advent season prophecy. He says, the family tree of David is like a cut off, it's been cut off, it's just like a stump. But from this stump will come forth a shoot and a branch from it will bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the earth shall become full of the knowledge of of the Lord as waters cover the seas. So God sent Jesus to keep a promise, a promise to David, a promise made to God's people through Isaiah. God sent Jesus to be this Messiah, the Christ, the Davidic king who would rule with justice and righteousness forever. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. Jesus, the Son of God, enters history with a fully human nature. That's what Paul means when he says, according to the flesh. And Jesus, fully God and fully man, comes to keep God's promise to David. The second truth this passage teaches us, though, is not only did God send Jesus to keep his promise to David, but also that God raised Jesus to rule. God raised Jesus to rule. In verse 3, we read that, He became the descendant of David according to the flesh. In verse 4, we find this parallel description. And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Let's unpack what Paul is talking about here, who he's saying Jesus is. First, what exactly is Jesus declared to be? He's declared to be the Son of God in power. This doesn't mean that Jesus was not the Son of God until his resurrection. We just saw it. Paul's starting point is that he's always been God's son. What Paul is saying is that this historical process that began when Jesus became the son of David continues after Jesus' death. It doesn't end with Jesus' death, but in his resurrection, it continues. So we see two successive stages in this historical process. In the first stage, Jesus is the son of God in weakness and lowliness. But after the resurrection, he's the son of God in power. In the first stage, Jesus was our mediator in his humiliation. In the second stage, he's our mediator in his exaltation. This phrase, in power, is the key difference. In his resurrection, he has come into his own power. Imagine, if you will, a prince who one day decided to explore his kingdom. He put on an old cloak and pulled the hood down to hide his face and slipped out the back door of his castle. While passing through the town market outside the castle walls, he saw a couple soldiers from his father's army beating and abusing a poor shopkeeper. 
The prince steps in to stop the soldiers, but being disguised in his cloak, they grabbed him too and were about to beat him. But the prince throws back his cloak so that the soldiers could see his rich clothes, his crown, and his signet ring. He was always the prince, of course, the son of the king, but now it's established that he's the prince in power. Now they see his power, and he can tell the soldiers what to do. Of course, every analogy breaks down, but like this prince, by his resurrection, Jesus' true power and authority is declared to us. We see Jesus Christ as God's son in power. God raised Jesus to rule forever. Paul makes this same point throughout his letters. In Ephesians 1, 20 and following, Paul says that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in heavenly places above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He put all things under Christ's feet. And in Philippians 2, 9, God highly exalted Jesus so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is raised to keep the promises to David, the promises in Isaiah, to establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness. How then is God's power, or rather Christ's power exercised? He's raised to be the son of God in power, but how does this authority work? Paul says it's according to the spirit of holiness. Again, we hear echoes of Isaiah 11. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. And after his resurrection, Jesus demonstrates his power by giving his Holy Spirit to the church. And now Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's enthroned in heaven and exercises his authority and rule through the spirit in the church. Finally, how are we told that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in power? We're told that by the resurrection, he's declared to be the Son of God in power. The resurrection establishes his right and authority to rule. Both Jews and Romans judged Jesus falsely to be the king of the Jews, and they executed him for it. They said, this man's usurping the Messiah's place, the Caesar's place. We must crucify him. But by the resurrection, God vindicates Jesus. He says, no, Jesus was in the right. He is the rightful king. He is the promised king of the Jews, but in fact, he's the king and rightful ruler of all the world, the true Caesar. Jesus' resurrection was the divine vindication of him as Messiah, the representative of Israel, and in fact, the whole world. So God sent his son to keep a promise, and he raised his son to rule. We see in these two truths a careful balance between two stages in Christ's ministry, the pre-resurrection and the post-resurrection. In the first stage, Jesus is frail. In the second, he's powerful and gives the Spirit. Here is a balance between Christ's humiliation and exaltation, the weakness and the power of the Son of God. His human descent is traced to David, but his resurrection establishes his divine sonship in power. But you might reasonably ask, especially if you're a skeptic, how do we know that Jesus was raised from the dead? And here we come to the third truth of this passage. God sent apostles to proclaim Jesus' victory. God sent his apostles to proclaim Jesus' victory. If you're a skeptic, you want to object. Of course the apostles would say Jesus rose from the dead. If they didn't, they'd be out of a job, right? 
And we might even think people in the olden days were superstitious and so more likely to believe in something like a resurrection. But the fact is that the resurrection puts a burden of proof on those who do not want to believe. It is not enough to simply say Jesus did not rise from the dead. No, you have to offer a historically feasible explanation for the birth of the church and, in fact, for the Apostle Paul himself. Remember, before becoming an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul was a successful Pharisee, apparently a rising star in first century Judaism. Why in the world, then, would he leave all of that success? Would he forego marriage and prominence in his own community? In his own words, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he worked hard, he was in prison frequently, he was flogged severely and exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day floating in the open sea. I have been continually on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone often without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. This is Paul's own testimony. This is, what, this is history. This is what Paul did. Now, why in the world would Paul do this if the resurrection, if he's just making this all up? Why would he do it? You have to have a historically plausible reason why he would leave all of the glory of his career behind to be beaten and abused. So first, you have to come up with a feasible explanation for the birth of the church, for Paul, why Paul goes on these journeys. But second, in the ancient world, the fact is that apart from the Jews who believed in a general resurrection at the end of the world, no one believed in the possibility of the resurrection. And, Jews included, no one expected or thought a person would rise from the dead in the middle of history. So you have to wrestle with this question. If you don't want to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, why did suddenly a significant segment of the population in the first century suddenly start believing that a man had raised from the dead, even though everybody said it was impossible? Again, in Paul's own words, he says he's simply passing on what he received, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born late, he appeared to me. Paul says the reason so many people suddenly started believing in the resurrection is because they saw it. We have eyewitness accounts from more than 500 people. Paul's issuing a challenge. He's saying, if you don't believe it, go check for yourself. There was people from Rome in Jerusalem at the time when Jesus was crucified and rose again. Go talk to them for yourself if you don't believe it. It's not enough for a skeptic simply to dismiss Paul's claim about the resurrection, saying it couldn't have happened. Historical explanations need to be given. Why did Christianity emerge so rapidly? No other band of Messianic followers in that area concluded their leader had raised from the dead. Why did this group think so? No group of Jews ever worshipped a human being as God. Why did this group start doing that? How do you account for the hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection who lived for decades and publicly maintained their testimony, eventually even giving their life for their beliefs? How do you explain Paul enduring all sorts of hardship and abuse for his claims that Jesus was raised for the dead? 
The simplest explanation of all of this is this. God raised Jesus to rule, and then he sent his apostles to proclaim Jesus' victory throughout the world. This is how Paul describes his own work. He's an apostle. That simply means one who is sent. He's a messenger who's sent and set apart for the gospel, the good news. Gospel means good news. Before the New Testament, it primarily meant good news about a military victory. So you can imagine a king might win a battle and then send messengers to announce peace and freedom that his victory had won. And so the gospel of God that Paul preaches is, as F.F. Bruce puts it, his joyful proclamation of victory and exaltation of his son and the consequent amnesty and liberation which men may enjoy through faith in him. We now have amnesty with God and liberation through this victory that's being proclaimed. Paul says that he had been sent out to bring good news in order to bring about the obedience of faith. God raised Jesus to rule, and his rule is extended by the apostles, bringing obedience motivated by faith. Not obedience trying to justify ourselves, but obedience motivated by faith, by our trust that Jesus Christ is our Lord and therefore knows what is best for us. Paul says this proclamation is not for the church's power or glory. The apostles didn't go around talking about Jesus to try and make themselves look better. No, it's for no other reason than this, for Christ's name's sake, for the glory of Christ. Finally, Paul says that God sent apostles to proclaim Jesus' victory to all nations. This is a message for the whole globe that everyone needs to hear. And this is why, in continuity with the apostles' work, we support missionaries like those we prayed for this morning who bring the message of Jesus' victory to all other countries. But if this is a message for all nations, that includes our neighbors and co-workers, our family and the people we bump into in the coffee shop. They need to hear this good news as well, and you are the one being sent to bring it. Finally, what is this message that the apostles are sent to proclaim? In verses 6 and 7, Paul gives us a short summary. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we can have grace and peace from God our Father. Although we have been alienated and separated from God by sin, we can have peace with him. Although we're rebels against God, Jesus' victory has brought peace at last. We were the enemy that's been subdued, and now we can have peace with God. Although our consciences are uneasy, we're even racked by guilt. We can have peace in Jesus. Paul's message is that Christ has called us his own. He has called a people who belong to him. A people who are loved by the Father, he says in verse 6. A people who are called to be saints, literally to be holy ones, to be people marked by the spirit of holiness by whose power Christ now reigns. In short, God sent apostles to proclaim Jesus' victory, that by God's plan, accomplished by our King Jesus Christ and applied by the spirit of holiness, we can now have grace and peace with God. What does this mean for us? Who is Jesus? He stands in your way, and he will not let you pass until you answer his question, who do you say I am? He stands at the door knocking, as we heard in the assurance of pardon. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come to that person. He stands in our way saying, who am I? Who do you say that I am? Is Jesus a lunatic or liar? Or is he the son of God sent to keep promises to David and Israel 
raised to rule and proclaimed by the apostles. If Jesus is not who he claimed to be, if he was not raised by the apostles, as, as the apostle, if he was not raised by God as the apostles and eyewitnesses claim, then you have to offer some explanation for why all these eyewitnesses and apostles claimed he was raised and were even martyred for that claim. But if Jesus is who he claimed to be, the son of God and the son of David, raised to rule, then Jesus Christ is truly the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says. And we owe him the obedience of faith, not to earn his love, he has already given that, he's given himself for us, but the obedience of thankfulness, obedience trusting that Jesus Christ, our Lord, knows what is best for us. This means that Jesus is raised to rule every area of our lives. This is difficult to accept, but in the obedience of faith is true peace. Let us pray. Jesus, when we were lost, when we were wayward, when we were even rebels against your rule, you came as the son of David, you died in our place, and you were raised again to rule. You have subdued us, you have brought us into your kingdom, you have called us your own. And we cannot respond but in the obedience of faith when we really recognize who you are and what you have done for us. We ask, even as we turn to praise your name now in song, that you would be at work in us through your spirit of holiness, that you would be ruling our hearts, that you would be driving out sin, the last outpost of the enemy in our heart, and remaking us in your image. We ask this in your name, for whose sake your message is proclaimed. Amen. Our confession of faith is from the Heidelberg Catechism. We confess with the churches of the Reformation for the last 500 years that Christ is our mediator, both God and man. Read this confession with me. We need a mediator and deliverer who is a true and righteous human, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also true God. He must be a true and righteous human because God's justice demands that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for sin. But a sinful human could not pay for others. This mediator must also be true God so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's wrath in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Sing now with me Psalm 161. O Christ, our hope, 